1: Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello
1: and welcome
0: to the podcast. I'm Holly Froh. And I'm Tracy so, uh when you were a kid, did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a millionaire and live in a mansion. Okay, so and then after that I wanted to be an author. So you're kind of on track? <laughs> no. Well Well, not for being a millionaire and an author. No. That's but- really hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> um I Really thought for a long time as a child that I wanted to be an astronomer. Mm -hmm. Like, I really thought that. Uh, And I was obsessed with our world book encyclopedias and all of the various entries on the solar system. And I would trace them and I would make these trifold pamphlets out of notepaper for each planet. But in the making of all of these pamphlets, which I published to my family, <laughs> I would always get frustrated with Pluto because we just didn't have enough facts in the 1971 edition of the World Book Encyclopedia to fill out one of my pamphlets. And I couldn't just keep tracing the circle over and over. No, um, You know what? If if we had been on the fence about, about bringing you to work with us, which we were not on the fence, <laughs> but if we had been, this story <laughs> <laughs> would have been the cell. Yep. Um, I also went through a phase where I did those on animals. I was really into publishing my own pamphlets as a kid. (laughs) I don't know what that was about. You're also on track. Yeah, kind of. Except I didn't become an astronomer, except as, you know, an amateur that just enjoys it. Uh, But Pluto was always tricky. uh, Because... We never knew as much about it because of its distance. And it's relatively newer to humans in terms of it existing and being than other things. So we don't have as much research on it. Yeah, we haven't known. So we have it more was... now than certainly we did then. Yeah. But, even so. yeah. but having not known that it was there until relatively recently. Yeah. We haven't had as much time to gather <laughs> information. Uh there will be hopefully a lot more really soon. But uh, So Pluto was discovered on February 18th of 1930, but of course it existed for a long time before then. Yep. And poor Pluto was a planet, and then it was demoted. And it was actually the only planet to have ever been discovered by an American. Just kind of an interesting uh, point of note. I think it's also the only time that an astronomical announcement has drawn fury. Well, yes. I can't think of any other fury inducing <laughs> announcements about astronomy. Uh, oh, I'm sure. You know, except yeah. for, except for in the very, very early days of astronomy when, you know, things yeah. like planets revolve around the sun were just. Yeah. Well, I think there have actually been a lot because any big discovery in astronomy often kind of shakes the ground of what came before it. Mm-hmm. So. There, there's been some outcry. We just didn't have as much media to cover it before. But it does make you wonder, how did we even think to look way out on the edge of our solar system for this tiny little object that would have been very difficult to find? And how did scientists and researchers find it? So it starts with suspicion. Yes. Yes. Someone's... Thinking that it might be there. Right. Percival Lowell, who was born in 1855, gets the credit for being the first person to suspect that Pluto was out there, past the eight planets that were known to exist in the solar system at that time. But he was never able to find conclusive evidence. And Lowell was a really interesting character. He had actually worked as a travel writer specializing in Asia and as a foreign secretary before turning to astronomy. He had studied mathematics in college. He came from a very good family. Uh, and he's actually probably more famous for his belief that Mars was uh, once inhabited by an alien species that had established agriculture and irrigation on the red planet. And those assertions may sound a little bit nutty to our ears today. But uh, the important thing is that Lowell's passion for astronomy and astronomical study actually led him to found the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. And he was not only interested in Mars. Decades before Lowell's interest in astronomy, other astronomers had noted an irregularity in the orbit of Uranus, which led them to the discovery of Neptune. So if you're trying to imagine how this works, as planets are orbiting, the sun's gravity is pulling on them. Mm -hmm. The gravity of other planetary bodies, they're also also pulling on each other. So because of the way that Uranus was orbiting, they were pretty sure there was something else out there. But even figuring uh, Neptune's influence into all the orbital equations for Uranus, that there were still discrepancies between the mathematical predictions of the orbit and the actual observed orbit that you could see. This led to the theory that there was yet another planet in the solar system beyond Uranus and Neptune. And Lowell became obsessed with finding it. Lowell performed his own mathematical calculations in an effort to pinpoint the likely location of what was being called at the time Planet X. And in 1905, he really just kind of developed a concerted effort. And he and the staff of his observatory began an extensive search for this planet X. Lowell published his book, Memoir on a Trans-Neptunian Planet, in 1915. And you can actually read that online. We'll have the link in our show notes. Love reading things online. Me too. Uh, and Lowell actually died in November of 1916. He was 61 at the time, and he had not yet found his missing planet. But he left behind a large monetary legacy to continue the search. Uh, his widow initially disputed the endowment, uh, but the search went on. The funding had been depleted by the legal battle, but it still was enough to keep this uh, search for Planet X Going. And that's where we get to Clyde Tombaugh, who is a very important figure in all of this. Tombaugh was born on February 4th, 1906, in Streeter, Illinois. And he became interested in astronomy after he got a telescope as a gift from his uncle. He became so interested in the telescope that after high school, when he couldn't afford college, he studied optics on his own. And in 1926, he built himself a homemade telescope. He made more telescopes after that first one, even grinding the lenses and mirrors for them himself. Which is pretty uh, impressive in my book. Like, the, I can't afford a college education. I'm going to study and kind of give myself one. Yeah. To the point that he could grind his own lenses for telescopes. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. It's delicate. It's delicate work. Yeah. Uh, and Tombaugh's story goes almost like wonderfully fairy tale wish fulfillment here. So using these telescopes he had built, he studied the night sky and he had made drawings of Mars and Jupiter as seen through those telescopes. And he sent them to the Lowell Observatory more for like feedback on, you know, if he was on the right track, if he was seeing the right things, et cetera. But instead of getting feedback, they were so impressed with his work that they actually offered him a job in astronomy which he had never formally studied. So that speaks a lot to his sort of scientific mind on its own, that he could just magically procure a A job job in astronomy. Without an advanced education. He was hired in 1929 to help with searching for a planet, the mysterious Planet X, which Percival Lowell had suspected was out out beyond Neptune. Tombaugh used a blink comparator, which is an instrument that optically superimposes photographic plates. So it's like they're blinked from one to another. And researchers can see tiny differences between the two. And he did this in an attempt to track down Lowell's Planet X. And the blink comparator is really amazing. Like, it's kind of these two photographic plates, and you look through what's almost like a microscope uh, eyepiece, and you literally just flip back and forth. And we're talking about a photograph taken through a telescope with, like, thousands of tiny dots on it that are all heavenly bodies. And someone with a very keen eye tries to see any variance between the two because they're taking, you know, aimed at the same place, but a little time distance apart. And it's, I mean, if you just think about staring at a sheet of dots on like a, a piece of paper and trying to see which ones are different on two, you can get a sense of how yeah, So just monotonous this could potentially be and what attention to detail you have to have. Right. It's like looking at the differences between two cells of a hand-drawn animated film. Yeah. But instead of looking at a nice pretty picture, you're looking at a field of stars. Yeah, <laughs> just dots on a page. Uh, however, Tombaugh, obviously... Keen on attention to detail since he had self-educated to the point that he could do some pretty impressive things. Uh, he managed to find what they were looking for. His work paid off pretty quickly. And it was the following year that he found what was called at the time the ninth planet. Uh, he pinpointed Pluto on February 18th of 1930. And he was only 24 at the time. It's a pretty early age to be making a very large, significant scientific discovery. Yeah. Again, with no formal training. <laughs> I, yeah. I just, I keep coming back to that because he did so, so many impressive things. Right. Without having own. gone to graduate school to get a PhD in astronomy. Yeah. Well, that happens later, but. Yeah. <laughs> so the payoff for all this, uh, apart from the fact that he discovered a planet, is that he received the Jackson Wilt Medal in gift from the Royal Astronomical Society. But even more importantly, he got a scholarship to the University of Kansas. He earned his bachelor's and continued to work at Lowell both during and after his studies. He also earned his master's in 1939. Tombaugh worked at Lowell for 14 years altogether, and he discovered numerous heavenly bodies while doing his research there, including star clusters, comets, and galaxies.
1: Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.
0: But back to Pluto, because I feel like Tombaugh's story is another one that could be another podcast on its own. He had a very interesting life. But the month after the discovery was made, they announced that they had found this heavenly body to the public on March 13th of 1930, which was also Percival Lowell's birthday. Uh, and on May 1st of that year, after the public had submitted suggestions for the naming of this new heavenly body. The name was chosen, and it was allegedly uh, submitted by an 11-year-old girl from England, and it was Pluto. And Pluto is, uh, of course, the Roman name for the Greek god of the underworld. But one of the significant things about choosing Pluto is that the symbol for Pluto includes representations of the letter P and the letter L, which were the initials for Percival Lowell. So it's kind of a nice way to name it on his behalf without naming it directly after him. So let's talk a little bit about this body that they found. It is extremely far away. 5.9 billion kilometers, which is 3.7 billion miles from the sun. And its diameter is 2,340 kilometers, which is uh, 1,454 miles. So it's less than one-fifth the size of Earth, and it's actually smaller than our moon. It's also extremely cold. The surface temperature is around minus 375 degrees Fahrenheit, Which is minus 225 Celsius. Pluto's solar year, which is the time it takes to travel around the sun, takes the equivalent of 248 Earth years. Its circumference at the equator is 4,437.7 miles, which is 7,231.9 kilometers. And then we get to the moons, which are actually pretty interesting. So Pluto has five moons that we know of so far. Sharon, Nix, Hydra, P4 and P5. And Sharon was discovered in 1978. It's about half the size of Pluto. And over the years, uh, a lot of astronomers have theorized that Pluto-Sharon is actually a binary system. So, Sharon doesn't revolve around Pluto. They're actually revolving around each other with a gravitational point fixed between them. Uh, which is an interesting thing. And that is why there is a Jonathan Colton song called You're My Moon. that is about that very thing. Nix and Hydra were discovered in 2005. P4 was discovered in 2001, and P5 was discovered in uh, 2012. Scientists believe that the moons of Pluto were formed when the dwarf planet collided with another planet-sized object. Uh, according to Mark Showalter, who is uh, of the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California, he has this great quote, which is, The moons form a series of neatly nested orbits, a bit like Russian dolls. Just a lovely image. Pluto's elongated orbit is also tilted in relation to the other planets. It actually passes inside the orbit of Neptune as it makes its way around the sun. And then we get to the controversy. Mm. Uh, it's kind of sad. Pluto is the only celestial body ever to lose its status as a planet. So it's the only one that's ever been demoted. Which is also a theme in the Jonathan Coltons. <laughs> In 2006, Pluto was reclassified as a dwarf planet and given the number designation of 134-340. Because there continued to be discoveries of heavenly bodies at the edge of the solar system, and some of them were actually bigger than Pluto, it became clear that they needed to take another look at Pluto's status as a planet. So the International Astronomical Union created a definition of the word "planet" in 2006 involving three criteria. Uh, one, it has to be an object in space that orbits the sun. Two, and this is obviously for uh, planets in our solar system. Two, it has to be a nearly round, rigid body. And three, it needs to clear the neighborhood around its orbit. But because Pluto orbits along the inner edge of the Kuiper Belt... Uh, It doesn't meet the third criteria. Astronomers have discovered and identified more than 1,000 other items in the Kuiper Belt that are really similar to Pluto and sometimes come near it. So it doesn't really meet that third criterion. Uh the only rule however for dwarf planets is that they have to be round so Pluto can be classified that way. And this all kind of started because of a display that was going on that Neil deGrasse Tyson often gets the heat for um, at uh the Hayden Planetarium where they just kind of quietly changed it up in their displays. Uh, I think in the year 2000, and then it it kind of started getting a little bit of groundswell of discussion, and then this officially happened. And so Neil deGrasse Tyson is often kind of labeled as the man who demoted Pluto, but he really wasn't. There was this whole other vote and discussion going on amongst other astronomers. Let's just not throw Neil deGrasse Tyson under a bus. That's... (laughs) Just not. Do I that. don't want to throw any scientists under the bus. I don't want to throw anybody ever under a bus. Yeah, never. They they're doing they're doing work that a lot of us don't have the the uh, knowledge to do, and it's important to those of us that thought we wanted to be astronomers but didn't end up there. <laughs> <laughs> So, in 1980, Clyde Tombaugh was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame at the New Mexico Museum of Space History for his discovery of Pluto and other heavenly bodies. He died at his Las Cruces, New Mexico home in 1997 at the age of 90. So, he did not live to see his discovery bumped down to the list of dwarf planets. Uh We are getting very close to what we hope will yield some really exciting information about Pluto. Uh, in July of 2015, NASA's New Horizons probe is expected to fly by the dwarf planet. Uh, and so this will undoubtedly lead to new knowledge about Pluto, which still remains pretty mysterious to us compared to other parts of our solar system because it is so far away. That will be the furthest out that we have sent this probe Oh, I can't wait. I'm going to mm. be that doofus that's like up at all hours of the night looking for data to come in. I've been up at all hours of the night for a number of astronomical things. Oh, for recently. sure. Like Oh, when the Mars rover landed, I was awake. I was yep. texting my best friend like a fiend and kind of crying a little bit. Cause I was, was, I was up moving. for the Mars rover and then the next night was uh, a meteor shower. Yep. There's, there's definitely been. I, that's one of the things that I think has just been awesome about the internet is, is making it possible for just the people on the ground to get all the same things at the same time as the people in Michigan drill. Yeah, we had very little delay. Yeah. From the JPL people getting info to it being broadcast on television and the internet, uh, if you have the, the uh, mission coverage channel. As part right. of your cable package, which I am lucky enough to have. Right. Well and also now, thanks to the internet, when there is a like a solar eclipse on the other side of the planet, you can watch it from your desk. Yeah. Even though it's not daytime where you are. With no risk to your eyesight. Yes. <laughs> I just remember that being such a cautionary tale as a kid. Yes. There's gonna be an eclipse. Don't look. Don't look at the sun. Uh astronomy. It's the best thing. I I would love to do more and more things on uh, astronomy history because it's so wonderful and I just love science in general so yeah we'll see what the future holds for Pluto its history has been kind of interesting and unique in several ways in terms of our knowledge of it mm-hmm. uh, and we'll see maybe it will get reclassified yet again once the probe goes by it yeah go new horizons find something new uh, then we'll discover it has some fabulous thing on it life No, probably not Not at least as we classify life so far. But we never know. Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. Yeah, you sounded so calm. And it's not a calm situation at all. Sistine Chapel so it's going to be a fantastic trip you can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuffy missed in history class or come over to our social media we have posts about it there too
2: available now from iheart a new series presented by T-Mobile for business the Restless ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution and the business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. There are certain decision makers that are restless. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. These restless ones are in pursuit of bigger, better, stronger. They seek new partners, new strategies, new processes. They pursue innovative platforms and solutions to propel their teams, businesses, and industries forward. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Hey, guess what? What? I also have a couple pieces of listener mail.
2: Cool. So
0: the first one is from our listener, Tim. And Tim uh, has a very cool job. He teaches British history at the Sorbonne in Paris. So Tim i will be visiting soon. <laughs> I, I wish. Uh Yeah, that sounds dreamy to me. And he is writing to us about our podcast on the Irish uh, potato famine. And he says, where I grew up in the west of Ireland, the countryside is dotted with thousands of abandoned villages from this time, which were like cooperative farm hamlets of maybe ten or twelve dwellings. Often, these have been totally reclaimed by the undergrowth and have no modern road connections. But if you tramp out into the fields, sometimes you notice that there is a cobbled path hidden in the grass beneath your feet, and that under the nearby brambles are old gateways and the remains of fireplaces and front doors. In old maps, they have names and streets and village squares, and on new maps, there's simply nothing there, vanished. It really is quite sad to think of people who lived and loved here, perhaps dying in these houses or leaving en masse for their village to disappear from history. Sadder still is the fields around the villages uh, are invariably surrounded by a network of rigid parallel lines in the landscape, the outlines of, quote, lazy bed potato fields, where once the people of these villages hold their rotting harvest out from the ground in devastation. I thought you might like that little personal detail that not many people notice. Uh, he's absolutely right. That's, yeah. It's one of those things I never would have thought about. Uh, and not having, you know, immediate access to that area, it, it would not have been something that I would have seen and piqued my interest. It is interesting the way, you know, Earth reclaims history on its own. Yeah. Uh, so I'm glad he pointed that out because people should know those were still there. Well, and in a much less, uh, much less tragic sense, it reminds me of there were, there were train tracks that went near my house when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, and as shipping things by train became fallen out of favor a little. Yeah. They were completely removed and within a couple of years you couldn't really tell unless you knew that there had been yeah. train tracks there. Yeah. Uh, I also have another piece of listener mail from our listener, Anne, and uh, it just made me so happy to read it that I wanted to share it. And Anne says, Hi, everybody at the podcast, past and present. Just wanted to thank you for being such good company when I'm out walking. So far this year, we have logged 375 miles together and you have helped me lose, brace for this because it's serious, 100 pounds since last April. I uh, haven't caught up on the present yet, and I hope to never run out of podcasts to sweat to Thanks again, and keep up the great work. Anne, you are awesome. Yep. That was why I just wanted to say that. Yep. That was pretty cool. Uh, that's pretty inspiring. So thank you, Anne, for sharing that, because that's a really cool thing. Yeah. You should be lauded and cheered at all points. I love the idea of people listening to us while they're making healthy changes. Yeah. Uh it's Awesome. Do you listen to podcasts while you run, ever? I I have a hard time listening to podcasts while I run. I do too. I can while I walk for sure. I can absolutely while I'm walking, or if I'm on the elliptical. Yeah, uh, but when I run, I need like running as much. I harder. need beat. Yeah, yeah. There has to be music when I'm running. I do listen to a lot of podcasts when I'm traveling a long way, when I'm waiting for things. I have a confession to make, which is that I have self-imposed a restriction where I'm not allowed to listen to podcasts while I'm driving, because mm-hmm. I get so absorbed in what is being discussed. I maybe don't make safe driving choices. Yeah, I do I the can't opposite be behind the wheel. Yeah, I do the opposite where I get distracted by the fact that I'm driving. I miss some important information. I miss important things, and I kind of go, "Wait, what are you, what are they talking about now?" Yeah. So and. You are awesome. Again, I'll say it many times over. I'm thinking it constantly. Uh, if you want to share any historical info with us or your personal triumphs like Anne, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at Missed in history and at Facebook.com slash stuff. We're on Tumblr at mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we're on Pinterest if you would like to learn a little something more about what we talked about today, you can go to our website and just type in Pluto in the search bar and you will get several different entries, one of which is, why is Pluto no longer a planet? Which will go into a little bit greater detail about what we talked about today. If you want to research almost anything else you can think about, you can do that on our website, which is
1: HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up
2: now. The richest, most powerful place on Earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything.
0: We have to get away from this place.
2: Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay.
1: Be sharp and die for
2: Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.